Morning, everybody. We're going to be in Mark chapters 4 and 5 this morning. If you brought your Bibles, you can turn there. If you didn't bring them, don't sweat it. It'll also be on the screen behind me. If you missed last week, just by way of review, what we talked about is that as the reader of the Gospel of Mark, you have been brought into a secret that nobody else knows. Mark has already told us up front that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But only a handful of people know that. You know it as the reader. Mark knows it as the one writing the gospel. And the only other people that know it in the moment are demons. So we're in a very elite group of people that we have been let in on this sort of secret. And the problem that Jesus has is he too is trying to keep his secret, his identity a secret. And he's working real hard to keep it on the down low. But the problem is, everything that Jesus is doing would naturally cause people to ask the question, Who is this man? You can't expect to drive out demons in front of everybody and not in the end have somebody go, huh, who is this guy? You can't possibly heal paralytics or heal people with leprosy or heal a man with a shriveled hand or other host of sicknesses and diseases and keep that on the down low. Picture in your mind being at Memorial Hospital on maybe the pediatric oncology ward. And Jesus showing up one day and just walking in every single room, he walks in and he heals that child of their cancer. How long do you think you're going to be able to keep that news under wrap? No, that'll get out like that. And the reason why is because every child has friends and family members who love them. They've been praying for them, supporting them, concerned about them, and they desire for them health. And so they've watched them walk through treatments and scans and surgeries and blood work and tests. And if Jesus were to walk through the hallway one day and heal every single one of them, there is no way that you're going to keep that silent. You can't just show up like at the next family reunion and like bring your child that once had cancer that now does not and brain tumor. What brain tumor? Like you just can't do that. And so Jesus has a problem. He's trying to be faithful to the kingdom of God, but every time he manifests the kingdom of God, it naturally leads to good news and you can't keep that under wrap. So everybody is talking, but that still doesn't answer who Jesus is. And this will be Mark's emphasis in the first eight chapters of the gospel. Over and over again, he will raise the issue, who is this man? And again, you already know, because you've been brought into the secret. And the only ones thus far are you, Mark, and the demons. Everyone else is trying to figure it out, and they don't all agree. So if you were just to walk around and ask people, hey, who do you think that guy is? Some will tell you, those who were in the crowd and actually watched it or experienced it, some will say, he's a healer. Jesus is a healer. And others, if you ask them, they got to see an exorcism, like Jesus cast out a demon, and they might say, oh, that Jesus, he's like an amazing exorcist. And others who listen to him preach and teach, and we know this from the gospel, that when Jesus got done teaching, some of the crowds were just amazed at what he had to say and the kind of authority that he preached with. And they'll say he's a teacher or a prophet. But there are others who don't think of him in these ways. In fact, they'll put another, when answering the question, who is this man, they'll put a more negative label on it. And so for others, Jesus is a real threat. And the reason why he's a real threat is because he's growing in popularity. He's sort of like a rock star in the area right now. He's gathering disciples to himself, and they don't know what to do with him. And they don't know what to do with him because he appears to be breaking the law itself. And so they watch Jesus very carefully, and he's picking food on the Sabbath, which is a huge no-no. He's healing people on the Sabbath. He looks to be an undiscerning teacher because he's criticized for hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and the wrong kind of people. In fact, when you get to the end of chapter Mark, Mark chapter 3, 
He'll even be accused of being demon-possessed himself. Well, you want to know how he cast out all those demons? He was able to cast them out because he has the prince of demons, Beelzebub, who possesses him. And Jesus has to address that. But what's interesting, at the end of chapter 3 of Mark, even his own family doesn't know what to do with him. I mean, it isn't like his brothers and sisters grow up thinking, my brother's the Messiah. Like, they don't think that at all. I mean, even Mary, who had things spoken about Jesus at his birth, even she doesn't know what to do with Jesus. And even they're asking the question, who does he think he is? <laughs> and so that's how it ends in chapter 3. You know, it's that idea of his family and now thinking, boy, have you lost your mind? Has anyone, your parent ever said that to you? Have you just lost your mind? Here's what it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Now that's a real problem. In the moment, so crowded, you can't eat, you need to get somewhere else. It says, that's another point. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, which I want to know what that would have looked like. For they said, that boy's out of his mind. <laughs> so what happens in verse 31, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and then standing outside, they sent someone in to call for him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside, and they're looking for you. And this is what Jesus says, who are my mother? And brothers, which you've got to imagine would have to sting a little bit if you're Jesus' mom and brothers. And they looked around at everybody who's seated in circles there in the crowd, and he says, here is my mother and my brothers. Which, can you imagine being Mary and hearing your son say this? Like, what are you talking about? He says, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, this will be a different sermon entirely, but at least in this moment, what I want you to see, what Jesus is doing here is he is taking the biological family, and he is saying it will not be the ultimate thing in your life. It will be secondary. What he's saying is, is what your family thinks of you and what it says about you and what identity it has given to you, what it says you were capable of is of secondary importance. The most important thing is what God thinks of you and what God says about you and what he has assigned to you in regards to your identity, and what he says you are capable of, that is first. That is an ultimate position. And that might be good news for some of you who are sitting here even right now, because we know, listen, families could be the place of the greatest support and encouragement and love and protection, but many of you know that they're also places of the most complete dysfunction. (laughs) Families have the power to completely screw up your thinking. Like, A whole field of therapy exists because of this reality. And what happens is, because of your family of origin, you have tapes that play in your head over and over again. And sometimes those tapes, we're not talking about like excellent 80s mixtapes with great songs. We're talking about tapes that are saying to you, you are no good. Or you're the screw-up. Or you will never amount to anything. Or you're not capable of. Or you don't deserve. Or you're to blame for. And the good news of Jesus in this moment is, listen, you are free from those tapes. That is not who you are. Your family does not have ultimate power to assign to you that kind of identity or sometimes even bondage. And so if you need that this morning, receive it as good news that your family, your biological family doesn't have ultimate say. God has ultimate say into who you are and what you're capable of. But now as we turn to chapter 4, so we're going to turn to chapter 4 here of the Gospel of Mark, we take a turn. And I'll tell you, Mark is a man of action and the picture he paints of Jesus in his gospel is also a man of action. Notice how quickly dialogue goes. He doesn't use a lot of words. Like some of you, like some of you women, you're married to men who they don't say many words, right? Like at the end of the day, they've got about 2,000 words and they're done. And you're like, I've got 50,000 more. We need to talk. 
Like, Mark is not your dude. Mark would be for your husband. Like, see, I'm the other, like, for Kelly and I, it's flip-flopped. Like, I'm not a girl, but I just, I like to use a lot of words. And what happens, her dialogue goes quickly. It's the shortest of the four Gospels, even in telling the stories. Mark just doesn't use a lot of words. There's no birth narrative in the Gospel of Mark. When you get to the temptation of Jesus, here's how Mark says it. Yeah, Jesus went out into the desert. He was tempted for 40 days, and angels attended to him, and then you move right on. You read Matthew, you're like, oh, let me tell you all about it. Let me tell you about the temptations, and let me tell you the scriptures that Jesus called. Like, he gives a lot of words. Mark isn't like that. So for some of you, you will be attracted to Mark's personality because he's a man of action, and Jesus is a man of action. Mark has 18 miracle stories of Jesus and only four parables, only four. That's unique to Mark. The other Gospels have a lot of parables of Jesus and teachings. They include a lot of words. And some of you appreciate then Mark's lack of words. Others of you, on the other hand, you love the exchange of ideas. You like to talk things over. You love lectures on it, reading books about it. You use a lot of words. You like to talk. That, that isn't Mark. Mark would be that guy in the training seminar that somebody's up there trying to talk about how to do something, and he would be impatiently thinking, let's just do it already. I don't want to talk about it anymore. He's a man of action, and he paints Jesus as one as well. Now, Matthew... For Matthew, Jesus is a rabbi. Let's talk about what Jesus says about the law and what that means and the profound implications of the kingdom of God. And the difference is Matthew and Mark have totally different audiences. Mark's gospel is written for Gentile Christians in the city of Rome. And what is important for this audience is predominantly what Jesus can do. Listen, any wise sage and philosopher might come up with some brilliant teaching, and there's plenty to go around, but who in the world can walk on water? And who can speak to a storm and actually make it obey? Who could take a 12-year-old little girl who's dead and bring her back to life again? That is something entirely different. And Mark's Gentile Christian audience would have to be confronted with, who is this man based on his actions? But I want you to picture in your mind for just a moment, we did this the very first week, but picture you are one of those Roman Christians. You're a Gentile. You live in the, 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 the capital of the empire in Rome, and you're just such a small band of people around you. And imagine what it means, the huge leap you would have to take. You would have to come to believe that Jesus was, in fact, the Jewish Messiah. And in order to do that, you would have to cross into an entirely different culture and ethnicity and religion. You'd have to dip your toes into Judaism. Otherwise, being the Messiah makes absolutely no sense to you. But second, the other thing you'll have to do is you've got to reconcile the vast majority, I'm talking the vast majority of your fellow Roman citizens don't buy this at all. And speaking of not buying it, even when you peer into Judaism and look into the Jewish community, what you recognize is it doesn't even look like the majority of Jews believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And there had to have been moments where it pops into your mind, am I just crazy? And maybe you've ever had those moments, right? It seems clear to you. It seems obvious to you the evidence is overwhelming and let you look around and it feels like the majority of people don't see it. And after a while, you live that long enough, you start to get a little insecure. You start to think, am I insane? Am I the crazy one? Why doesn't anyone else see this? Why don't they believe this? And listen, even in terms of faith, this might be your personal story right now. Like you've come to believe in Jesus, but no one else in your family has. And after a while, you might tend to have pop in your head, am I crazy? for thinking these things and believing these things? Or you appear to be the only one at school among your friends or maybe at your job, you're only among your coworkers as a follower of Jesus. And sometimes when you feel outnumbered and oftentimes like you're the only one, you can't help 
but every once in a while I have that fleeting thought of, am I just crazy? Am I nuts for believing in this? And this is the reason why I think Mark will hear in the next chapter 4, even though he shares four in the entire gospel, in chapter 4 he will share some parables of Jesus. And you always have to ask yourself, with so many parables available, why does Mark just select these? Why not others? And the reason why. And the reason why is, I think, is to address the reality that they are living in the shadow of the emperor, and there is no one more powerful. The symbols and displays of his power are all over the place. If Caesar wanted you dead, you were dead. So if you were asking the question, who's in control here, a Jewish preacher from Galilee might not be the first thing that comes to mind. And yet there you are, sitting in this house church, listening to the Gospel of Mark for the first time, and you're committed to the belief that the Jewish preacher from Galilee has in fact brought the kingdom of God. That what God wants to happen on earth is now happening. That Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. That God is now in control, not the emperor. And that takes faith to believe. And just by sheer popular vote, it doesn't appear that the majority agree. And it might leave you thinking, am I just crazy? Why, why can't everyone else see what I see? Even among the Jews, the majority of them don't even agree about their own Messiah. So once again, you're about to be brought into a secret. Now, the topic this time is not the identity of Jesus per se, but the nature of the kingdom of God, what it's going to be like, how it's going to operate. So I want you to get ready for the secret here. Pretend that you have your decoder ring in your hand and you're about to get the secret message and it's, it's going to be bigger than be sure to drink your Ovaltine. And here it is in chapter 4, the story is in the secret. Verse 1, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. And the crowd that gathered around him was so large that he actually had to get into a boat and he sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. And he taught them many things by parables. And his teaching said, now he's about to go into his parables, but here again I want you to notice what's happening. Everywhere Jesus goes, a crowd gathers. He's like a rock star. It's so crazy logistically that he can't even be on the banks of the shore. He actually has to get into a boat and from the boat he teaches the crowds because there's so many of them. What I'm saying is, if Jesus is trying to keep this a secret, this is the worst kept secret in the history. Like, and what happens, Jesus is about to add another layer of secrecy here. He's going to talk in parables, and that's not a word that we normally throw around. In short, a parable is just a simple story that typically has a moral or a spiritual point to it, but it's only, almost always it uses allegories and it uses symbolism, which means it's not necessarily obvious to people who are listening. So here's Jesus' first parable, beginning verse 3. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Well, some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but as soon as the sun came out, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so they did not bear grain. And still other seed fell on good soil, and it came up and grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, and some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And here's what I picture the crowd going, what? <laughs> In fact, this is a nice farming story, Jesus, but my guess is they don't have a clue as to what this is about. Now, I, my guess is there was a couple that were trying to be a little proud of themselves, and they know more than anyone else, and they knew Jesus was trying to say something profound, and so they, after he got done, one said to this friend, whoa, that was deep. <laughs> and his friend said, I don't get it. What does it mean? 
His friend said, I don't either. I just want to look profound. <laughs> and so, once again, you're asking, is Jesus about to start a farm? Like, what does this have to do with anything? But once again, Mark is going to place you as the reader in a privileged position. You're about to once again be on the inside of the secret, kingdom secrets. You're going to know what the crowds at this moment do not yet know, and the disciples are trying to figure out. So it's in verse 10. Here's the secret. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He said this to them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that, and he's going to quote a scripture here, they may be seeing, ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And at this point, the disciples are like, what? Then this is what Jesus says to them. Don't you understand this parable? No, we don't. Well, then how will then you understand any parable? We're getting concerned about that too. Here it is. The farmer sows the word. Oh, the word. And some people, like their heart, their lives, they're like seed that's along the path. Their life is like a path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan just comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Otherwise, others are like seed sown on a rocky path. They hear the word and at once they receive it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And still others are like seeds sown among thorns. They hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. And others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, and some 100 times what was sown. Now, if you are Mark's audience, two things are happening. One, you're already struggling with, how come nobody else buys this? Like, am I crazy? And what Mark just did is he shared a parable from Jesus with the church in Rome to let them know, let me explain to you why not everybody buys this. The reason why not everybody buys this is because their heart and their lives are like different kinds of soil. And I'm telling you, after 20 years of ministry here, I've, I've seen all four types of lives here at the Living Stones Church. There are some people that when they hear the Word of God, they're like a path. And I mean, and nothing happens, like nothing. And what Jesus says, like a, Satan comes in and steals it and it never produces anything. Others are in a rocky place, which means that shallow, so it quickly springs up. Like they show up to church one time and they're super excited about Jesus and I'm all in. They sign up for groups and everything else and I'm going to serve here. And, and then like six days later, where did they go? Like where they go? Like they're gone. Like that's just because things in life got in the way. And others are like thorns. Like it's a seed planted in thorns. It's, it's not that they don't want to love Jesus. It's just life happens. And they get super busy and they got this and they got that. And the kids are involved in this and they kind of go pursue other things in terms of wealth and God just isn't a priority but then there's a fourth category and it's good soil and man when the word hits their life it produces a harvest that's 30 60 and even 100 times what you would guess and my guess is that Mark is even probably intending for this to be a challenge to his listeners to choose to have good soil kind of lives my guess is probably like a for example uh, I heard about a uh, in, in high school, they had an armed forces recruiting day, and so they had recruiters from all the different branches of the military show up, and the guy from the Army got up and talked about how good it would be to join the Army and what you get for it, and then the Air Force guy showed up, and he got up and talked about the advantages of enlisting for the Air Force, and all the branches did, the Navy did, and those sorts of things. But the Marine recruiter got up, just stared at the audience, like awkwardly long time and signed, just stared at him. 
And then he said, I don't think there's even three or four of you could even cut it in the Marines, but I'd like to see the three or four of you on this corner here when we're done. And then everyone went to the corner because there was a challenge in it, right? The same thing I remember happened. I used to pour concrete when I was in college, and it kept me in college. <laughs> um, the Pabzinski brothers in Lakeville, they have a concrete business, and I poured, and uh, after my first week of pouring concrete, let me tell you something, if you never poured concrete before in the middle of the summer, you don't need any sermons on hell, you are living in hell, like, and I remember, I, in my brain, I thought, I'm quitting, like, I'm not, I'm done, like, I'm not getting paid enough for this, like, the heavy forms, and the buckles are burning my back, and just, it was heavy, and so I was in the truck, and I had already decided, I am quitting this job, like, I work anywhere, I'm not doing this anymore. And uh, the guy that I was riding with who worked there on, uh, for the Pabzinskis, he's talking about that they go through several uh, summer helps. You know, they just kind of come and go real quick. And they could usually tell who's going to stay and who's not going to stay. And he said to me, he goes, we all talked about it. We think you're going to stay. And I already decided in my head, I'm quitting this job. This is terrible. <laughs> but as soon as he said that, I thought to myself, well, I can't quit now. Like, they, they all think, so I stayed the whole summer. I went back the next year to work for the Pabzinskis. Like, there's, some, there's a challenge in you're probably going to make it, even if you decide you're not going to make it. And my guess is even in the parable, what Mark is saying is, listen, I know you have lots of options in your life. You could be the rocky path, you could be the one, or the path, you could be the rocky place, or the, be the good soil. And it is sort of a challenge to be just that. And in it, the, the story continues with, listen, you have been given the secret kingdom knowledge. You have in hand the secrets of the kingdom of God, and it is good news. It is light, and you can't keep that to yourself. You've got to let your light shine. We even sing a song about it, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Like, that's, what, that's what Jesus says next in verse 21. He says, he said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put under a bowl or under your bed? No, oh, that's ridiculous. Instead, don't you put it on a stand so it lights the whole room? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. I, I think he was talking about this, you now have the secrets that no one else got. And whatever is concealed is meant to be brought into the open. And if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued, with the measure you use will be measured to you. And even more, whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. But the disciples need to learn a lesson here. And this is where we're about to go here in Mark chapter 4. The disciples need to know what it is that they're responsible for and what they're not responsible for. And I would just say this to anyone who's a church leader at all. Like, you need to know what God has made you responsible for, and thus what you can take credit in, and what you are not responsible for, and this is not your business. Because it's always tempting to take responsibility for things that are not yours, or to take credit for things that are not yours to take credit in. And it's very easy to fall into the trap of measuring success on measurements that God has not assigned to you. It's very easy to be tempted to use measurements that aren't from God at all. And what happens is your mood and your emotions get stuck in that. And so depending on how you think it's going, like your mood and you're just, you're all over the place. And so Easter shows up and man, it's packed in here. And you're tempted to walk away and go, look at us. Until the next Sunday when Easter's not happening and right, then you get all depressed again. Or you have an event at the church and it's successful. And then you have the next event, and oh, that was a flop, and then you're depressed again. People give their lives to Jesus. Woo! No one seems to care about Jesus. Oh. And you kind of rise and fall on that. Week to week, the barometer of things that aren't even yours to take responsibility or credit in. And it is possible that that small group of Roman Christians, they probably they might feel deflated. Maybe a little discouraged. They might feel like their vacation Bible school and their food pantry and their I Love Rome service day where they all got a t-shirt and went out and served. Didn't really, wasn't, right? Because every church did it. 
And what happens is they need to be reminded what their job is. And you know what their job is? You scatter seed. That's it. What happens next is not your work, and it's not even none of your business. And so Jesus says this in verse 26. He also said, here's the second parable. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day. Listen, whether he sleeps, which I recommend if you have two options here, whether he sleeps or he gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, and he doesn't even know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Now, the analogy, once again, is a farming, a farming analogy where the farmer scatters the seed. And what Jesus' parable informs us is that the farmer has only one responsibility, scatter seed. And then you have a harvest. And how did we get the harvest? Not by anything the farmer did, night or day. He could have slept soundly or he could have stayed up all night worrying about the seed. The soil is what produced the grain. Know what is yours to carry and know what isn't. And sometimes it's easy to fall into discouragement because your kid hasn't given their life to Jesus. Listen, I'm not saying that I don't understand the pain of that or the prayer in that, but that's not your concern. You scatter seed, the rest is on God or your spouse doesn't believe, or you've got a parent that you really want to come to know Jesus, and here's what you need to know. Your job is simply to scatter seed, plant the word, and whether it grows or not, it is not your responsibility, and it isn't even yours to take credit in either way. And we know this about all healthy relationships have boundaries. That place where you end and another person begins. And the important thing about boundaries is it instructs you on what you are responsible for, and what you are not in another person, and things get dysfunctional when those lines get blurred. The same is true for the kingdom of God. You feel small, little Roman church. That's not on you. It isn't your responsibility. You scatter, trust God. Third parable, last one in this chapter. Along these same lines, the same question. Verse 30 says this. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's kind of like a mustard seed which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds could perch in its shade. And with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. And he did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. And here's what the point of the parable is. Listen, I know you feel small, but God takes small and he makes it a significant thing. This is a lesson of the kingdom of God. Don't be discouraged that it feels so small and insignificant right now. You can't imagine this making much of an impact. You can't imagine this in any way being defined as a success. But God takes the seemingly small and insignificant and he makes it great. Sometimes as you're looking at your meager resources, you're thinking, I don't know how this is going to make any difference at all. What I'd say is give it to God and watch what he does. Or he's given you a talent or a heart for something, but deep down you feel insecure about it. You think, I don't know, how in the world is I going to affect and impact the world with this? What I say is give your talent and your heart to God and see what he does. He kills giants with just your little slingshot and stone. Don't be discouraged in the apparent resources. There are divine potentials you know nothing about. And there you have it. Almost all of the parables of Jesus, according to the Mark, there's one more we'll get to in chapter 12, but you just read, he only has four, we just read three of them. 
and they're, help, they're intended to help the Roman Christians through this question. Where is everyone else, and why don't they believe? Now, back to Mark again. Mark now, all right, we're done with the teachings and stories of Jesus. Now it's back to action. So this is what happens in verse 35. Back to action we go. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake, that is. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat, and there were also other boats with him. And then verse 7 says this, a furious squall came up. Anyone ever been in a furious squall? (laughs) I like that phrase. I'm in a furious squall. It seems so calm when I say it. It, Anyhow. And the waves break over the boat, and it's nearly swamped. So just picture this. You're in the middle of a storm out on a lake, and you think, oh, my goodness, we're going under. But verse 38, Jesus was in the stern. You know what he's doing? He's taking a nap, which is why I want to follow after Jesus and be just like him in every way. So he's sleeping on a cushion, taking a nap. And so the disciples wake him up, and they say this, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up. And he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Now at this moment, you're thinking, this dude's a madman. Until the wind died down and it was completely calm. So he turns to his disciples and he says, why are you so afraid? To which there's a real answer to this. The answer is the squall that came upon us and was swamping the boat. That's why. Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified, and they asked each other. This is Mark's whole point for telling the story. What do they ask each other? Who is this? This is Mark's central point in eight chapters. Who is this? He just put the question in the mouths of the disciples. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey? Listen, we're not just dealing with sickness or demons. This is nature. We just took it a whole other level. I mean, there were other exorcists in the first century. It would not have been unheard of for someone to claim to heal the sick even, but no one had ever heard of a human having mastery and command over nature. And thus, bringing the question, who is this? Now, for time's sake, here's what I want you to do. Go home and read chapter 5. I'm about to paraphrase it. I want to tell you the stories in chapter 5 for time's sake, but go home and read it for yourself. Here's what happens. After the furious squall is over, everything's calmed back down, they get to the other side of the lake to the region of, of Gennesaret is the name of it. And as soon as Jesus steps out of the boat, what happens is a famous dude in the region that everybody knows about. Here's why they know about it, because all the kids tell stories about him. Because he actually lives in a cemetery among the tombs, and he's crazy. And not just crazy crazy, like demonic crazy. What happens is that late at night, you could hear him screaming, And he takes stones and he's cutting himself like he's out of his mind, demon-possessed. And everybody knows of him. In fact, the town from time to time gathered together, sort of like Beauty and the Beast, where they're going to get the beat. Like they they take him and they chain him up in the cemetery so he can't be free, he can't come out. And he just has such demonic super strength, he he just snaps those iron chains right off. Well, as soon as Jesus steps out of the boat, that dude starts running towards Jesus and the disciples. Could you imagine? Like if I'm one of the disciples, like, oh, we get back in the boat and we're right now, right? And what happens is the dude runs right up to Jesus, falls on his knees, and like every other demonic encounter, you know what he starts yelling? I know who you are. You're the son of God. Are you here to torture us? That's what he's yelling. And the next thing you know, Jesus, they negotiate, which is weird. But So Jesus says this, what's your name? Like I'm like, what's supposed to say? Bob. I mean, I don't know what he's was. And the demon says, legion, which is interesting. Mark records the the Latin here. And legion means there are many of us. 
So this dude has a lot of demons. And then a negotiation breaks out. The demons start begging Jesus, do not send us into the abyss. And right near them is a herd. Is it a herd of pigs? It's not a flock, right? It's a herd? Thanks. A herd of pigs. A flock, they're not flying. Okay, so. I love the zoo, though. I went to the zoo yesterday. It was a beautiful day. Anyway, now, they start begging Jesus, don't send us to the abyss. At least send us into the pigs. And Jesus says, all right. It's like, okay. So he casts these demons out of this man. They go into the pigs. The pigs go insane. They run off of a cliff, and they dive off, and they, they, they perish, like all the pigs. You know how many pigs there were? 2,000. And this is important because that's a lot of bacon and ham. <laughs> this is the devastating part of the story. But then this dude that everybody knows, he's sitting there in his right mind, and they put clothes on him. And nobody could figure this out. And so what happens is the people who are looking after the pigs, they run into the town and say, hey, you've got to come quickly. There's this dude named Jesus. He just, I don't know what happened. There's a demon. Went to the pigs. They went off the cliff. They're all gone. So the townspeople show back up, and they beg, you've got to go. Like it says, they're terrified. You've got to go. But the man who had been demon-possessed, who's now sitting there in his right mind with clothes on, he looks at Jesus and says, can I go with you? Like, what am I supposed to do? And Jesus actually, before it's like, don't tell anybody, but Jesus actually gives him permission to go tell your family how good God has been to you. And it says, not only does he tell his family, he tells the entire area of Decapolis. Well, after this story, they beg him to leave, and he does. So Jesus gets back in his boat with his disciples, and they start to cross the other lake, and they get on the other side, and guess what happens? A whole crowd gathers because they want to see Jesus, so Jesus gets out of the boat, and just as he get, gets on shore, there's a man named Jairus, who is a synagogue ruler, who has a 12-year-old little girl who's dying. And as soon as he sees Jesus, he thinks in his mind, this is my only hope. I need Jesus, to, maybe Jesus will come back with me to my house and he'll heal my baby girl and she can live. And so he falls at his knees, just like that demoniac just a few moments ago. He falls at his knees in front of Jesus and says, will you go back to my house and heal my 12-year-old daughter? And Jesus agrees to do so. So they're on their way to Jairus' house to encounter this 12-year-old little girl who's, who's almost dead. And as they're walking, crowds are all over the place. They're pressing in on Jesus. Like, it's just like a, just picture a rock star celebrity with everybody trying to get to them. And out of nowhere, there's a woman in the crowd who had been bleeding for 12 years. And she's lost hope because she's already spent all of her money on doctors and tried to get other help. And no one's, in fact, it says about her condition just got worse. But she thinks to herself, her only hope, if I could just touch the hem of Jesus' cloak, which, by the way, he would have been probably wearing a prayer shawl, and that's what she's thinking. If I can just touch the hem of that prayer shawl, maybe I can be healed. And so here's why this is controversial. It's because she's bleeding and hemorrhaging. And according to the law, you're unclean. And when you're unclean, you don't get to just touch people, let alone Jesus. But she tries to go through all those breaks, social protocol, legal protocol, and she touches Jesus' hem of his cloak, and as soon as she does, she's healed. And what's so funny is Jesus is just walking around minding his own business, and as soon as she touches his cloak, Jesus was like, I don't know what that feels like, but Jesus knew power went out from him and healed somebody, but he doesn't know who. And so he stops, and he starts asking, who just touched me? <laughs> Which his disciples think, what are you talking about who touched you? Like, there's crowds everywhere touching you. And Jesus says, no, listen, I felt power come out of me. And so I don't know, like, like, I don't know what that feels like. <laughs> he knows somebody touched him and got healed. And the woman's getting nervous and getting angry. Could you imagine? Oh, I've got to confess. So she finally confesses to Jesus, like, I- I'm the one that touched you. And he was so impressed by her faith, he says to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. 
And what you'll need to see and mark over and over again is Jesus responds to faith. That radical, I'm going to break through social protocols, legal protocols, whatever I have to do to get to Jesus. Remember when the friends put a hole in the roof and alert, like, Jesus was so impressed by that. Like, whatever you need to do to get to Jesus, I'm telling you, Jesus is always impressed by that, and he responds. And so that's what happens. So anyhow, so they're back on their way now to Jairus' daughter, and on their way, one of Jairus' servants shows up and says, she's already dead. It's too late. We missed it. Just don't, you don't even need to trouble the teacher any longer. Just let him go. And you know what Jesus says at this moment? He says, don't be afraid. Just believe. So they keep walking. And you can imagine how nervous Jairus must be trying to process this whole thing. And he just got word that his baby girl has passed away. And they're still going. And he's got Jesus. And he didn't, I have no idea what's going to happen. When they showed up to the house, the crowd was out of the house, and they're all crying and wailing, and there are all sorts of commotion, which, by the way, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, a mourning procession in the Middle East, but, I mean, it's full of noise. I mean, beating on the chest and trills. And, I mean, and that's probably what was happening even in the days of Jesus. When Jesus shows up, he says the most insensitive thing I can think of. He says to the crowd, what are you all crying about? <laughs> hey, dude. <laughs> and then he says, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And I'm telling you, there's somebody that I just want to punch them in the mouth at that moment because they know what death looks like. Like, they don't get confused with she's taking a nap versus she's dead. And at this moment, they're making fun of him, and Jesus just looks at the mom and dad, and he picks just three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and says, follow me. So they walk into the room where the little girl is, and she is dead. But he takes her by the hand, and he says this, in the Aramaic, which had been the common language he would have spoke, Talitha kum. What that means is, little girl, get up. And she does. The little girl comes back to life again, and then it says they gave her something to eat, which I also love because I guess death makes you hungry and Jesus fixes that. That's the great thing about Jesus. And if you read chapter 5, you'll just continually see the balance of keep this a secret, don't tell anybody. Like this is what he said to, the, to don't tell anybody. When, after he heals the girl that's been dead, he says to the whole family, don't say this, don't tell anybody. <laughs> okay, I keep this a secret. And here's what we learn from Mark, and this is how we'll close. What is good news to us is that our Lord Jesus is a man of action, and he has power. And let me tell you why I think that's good news for some of you in this morning. Because some of you walked in this morning, and you are walking through a storm. And you've been praying, and it isn't getting any better, and you're concerned that Jesus is asleep on a cushion in your life. But I want you to know he's about to wake up, and he's going to speak to your storm. Or at this moment, you have no control. It's in the judge's hands or your ex-spouse's hands, or in your employer's hands, and all you need to know to do is to hold on to the side of the boat for dear life, and waves are crashing in, and the wind is swirling like crazy, and you're going to need Jesus to wake up and take power over all of it. And it's okay for you to say to him, like the disciples did earlier, just say, don't you care? And watch how Jesus responds. He's able to speak to the storm. Be quiet. Be still. Now, those of you, you've walked in here and you're tormented. You might not want to admit it's a demon, and maybe it's not a demon, but you're still tortured. And you haven't admitted this to anyone else. In fact, if they were to ask you, you would probably deny it if you were confronted with it. But deep down, deep down, you know that alcohol has you. Like, you count down hours while you're at work so you can get a hold of it. You start to panic internally when your stock of it is starting to run low. And you make plans and reject plans on whether it will be available, and you're just tormented. And others are 
have such deep-seated anger going on, and you know it's a problem. In fact, your whole family knows it is a problem, but your whole family has learned how to smile in front of just the right people to hide it and keep it inside. But deep down, you know it's tormenting you, and that anger has you chained up and bound, and it leads to death. Others of you are tormented by bitterness or unforgiveness. Listen, there is good news. Jesus has the power to speak to a legion of things that might be tormenting you to set you free and in your right mind. And for others of you, you are desperate to bring from death life again. You've been walking around maybe for 12 years in sickness and you've just given up. You're desperate, you're tired, you're slipping into despair. All you need to do is reach out your hand and touch the hem of Jesus' garment. All you need is to say to Jesus, would you please come and put your hand on the dead place of my life and make it live again. And what Mark is trying to tell us is what we have come to believe. And we know who this man is. This man is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And he has power and he has authority. And we want to receive in our life what Jesus wants to offer us so that when others see it and ask, we can say, we have good news. And let me tell you who this man is. That you might have a story because you know the secret. It's Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we're going to pray what Jesus taught us to pray. And we want to ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in our life just like it is in heaven. And so I ask that whatever love looks like in heaven, I pray that that would break out in each one of our lives. Whatever peace looks like, whatever joy looks like in heaven, I pray that would happen now here on the earth in our life, in our home, in our workplace, in our relationships, in our finances. We are asking that your kingdom would come with great power and with great authority and that those places that are swirling around and are, it feels like a storm, I pray that this morning you would speak calm into it. In those places where we are tormented by whatever it might be, that you would silence that and also cast it out that we might live in peace. And Lord, wherever there are places in our life that are just dead, whether it's a relationship or our bank account, Lord, would you please make it come to life again? This is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.